Now, I just wonder, have you ever received any um, negative feedback from people? Okay, I'm sure that we all have uh, had a lot of this experience in our lives, right? The older you get, the more you more you've experienced it. So maybe you said or did something that you know was a bit insensitive, and somebody told you to your face, "I don't like it." Okay, or maybe you have a bad habit that uh, you know somebody tried to correct, or maybe you ask somebody for their opinion, and you received an evaluation that you didn't really want to hear. Okay, whatever it is, sometimes hearing the truth hurts, right? Uh, I mean, hearing the truth is good for us. But sometimes hearing the truth hurts. But how do we how do we respond to hearing the truth? You know, I, I find that it's much easier to, you know, kind of dismiss criticism, make excuses for ourselves, re- reject the truth and you know hold grudges against people who tell us the truth about us. But you know, you see, we we are people who like to tune in only to the nice and positive things about us. But it's much harder to be humble, to accept the truth in humility, to swallow our pride and to take it as, as an opportunity to learn. But that's the only way that we can grow in our character and our wisdom. So what kind of person are you? you know, are you the kind of person who listens you know, to the truth and you don't, you don't want to change, you don't want to take it, or you're the kind of person who's willing to listen and change? Now so far in the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus has come to tell people the truth about God, about himself and about the kingdom of God. But it is hard to hear the truth sometimes because the truth uh, shows us up for who we really are and the truth demands a response from us and that may not be the response that we want to give. And so in today's passage, Jesus is going to confront us with the truth uh, and we will have to see what are people's reactions. How did people respond to Jesus then? And also how are we going to respond today to Jesus' truth? So let's start by looking at uh, chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. And that's the first episode recorded for us here. And here Jesus called a tax collector called Levi to follow him. And Levi just got up and left his tax collector's booth behind before his presumably all the money and all the you know documents and stuff that he had and walked off and followed Jesus. Now in those times, being a tax collector... Uh, was quite a despised job. No, you know the the people of Israel actually hated tax collectors. You know you did earn a quite good amount of money being a tax collector, but people hated you. You see, the reason is because Israel was under the Roman rule at that time, and the tax collectors were collecting money, which would eventually go to to Rome. And so they felt that you were all traitors. You know, you were all collecting money from your fellow brothers, fellow men, and giving them to the enemy. And not just that. Actually, they collected more than they needed to collect, and the extra all went into their own pocket. So there are two reasons for hating them, and the Jews thought of uh, tax collectors as you know the worst class of sinners. So if you're a tax collector, you were kicked out from the synagogue, and you could not be a witness in court, and you were a shame and disgrace to your own family. And because of this, no self-respecting religious teacher would ever associate himself with a tax collector. Okay, because that would be Political suicide, that would be you know, losing your credibility ratings. But, you know, Jesus, just imagine Jesus actually went and called Levi, a tax collector, to be his disciple. So Jesus is not your ordinary Jewish rabbi. And what's more, Jesus did not just call Levi, but he actually went to his house and ate with a whole gang of tax collectors and sinners. I mean, the Pharisees 
what do we mean by sinners here? And some of the translations have inverted commas. Well, the Pharisees describe everyone who didn't follow their very strict interpretation of Judaism as sinners. That is, they, they thought that you know to be a faithful Jew, you had to obey a certain set of rules, uh, which you know their ancestors had made up. And if you didn't obey them, you were sinners. Now, sometimes some people were too poor or you know uneducated to actually follow all these things strictly. So if you were a shepherd, if you were a laborer, you didn't have time to pass around all these rules, they also called you a sinner. But of course, a sinner also includes people who really broke God's law, like you know people like adulterers, prostitutes, things like that. The Pharisees just lumped them all in the same category. These are all sinners. So it's, it's just like how you know, we are mostly middle class, respectable, you know, people. We would look down on those abeng, those alien out there. You know, we would look down on people who are wearing torn jeans and purple clothes, uh, purple hair and, you know, those chunky fake jewelry. Uh, you know, people who have rings in strange parts of their bodies, you know, who are, you know, alcoholics, who are delinquents and truants and loiterers. You know, we wouldn't actually invite them to a house to have dinner with them, right? And we wouldn't go to their house to, you know, to have dinner with them and their whole gang. See, eating dinner with someone shows that you are friends with them, shows that you accept them and you enjoy their company. And so Jesus sharing a meal with tax collectors and sinners, you know, would, would be really shocking and scandalous for the Jewish leaders of the time. So just imagine if a church pastor went and had a party with uh, gamblers and strippers and gangsters and so on. Of course, you know, there will be a huge scandal, isn't it? But that's what Jesus was doing. Now the Pharisees were really offended when they saw this. Okay, and, and they saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners and they went to ask Jesus, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, and Jesus' reply was, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus has come to call all of us who are sick with sin. So he has come to save all of us who have this disease of rebelling against God. You know, we cannot escape from our helpless condition. We cannot escape the punishment for our sins. And we cannot save ourselves from the control that sin has over us. And Jesus came to save us from that. See, Jesus was the friend of sinners not because he came to join them. He didn't come to pat them on the back and say, oh, let's all have a great party and, you know, don't worry about your sin. No, he didn't condone their sin. But Jesus became the friend of sinners so that he could call them. He could call them out of their sin and call them to receive God's mercy and forgiveness and call them to follow him. See, the fundamental problem with people is not that they are poor, not that they are, uh, un, you know, not that they are sick, not that they are uneducated. See, the main thing that we need in life is not all these things. It's not uh, wealth, it's not health, it's not education. But what we really need most is forgiveness. You see, the fundamental problem of people is sin. And so the, the, the thing that we need most is forgiveness. Just like last week, we looked at the story of the paralytic. And Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. You see, that he came with an illness, but Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. See, the forgiveness of sins is what we really need most. And Jesus came to save us from sin and to bring forgiveness. And the tragedy is that even though all of us are sinners, all of us are in need of forgiveness, some people do not 
acknowledge that and they are blind to that fact. You see, the Pharisees, they refused to accept the shocking truth that they were also sinners and they also needed forgiveness. You know, they thought they were right with God. They thought that God would be very happy with them, you know, because they were following all these rules and regulations and they were so respectable in society. Everybody looked up to them. All their peers accepted them. But you know what? That's the last group of people that God would accept. See, instead of recognizing that they were terminally ill, they really needed a doctor, these Pharisees thought, I'm healthy. I don't need a doctor. See, instead of recognizing that they were all sinners in need of a savior, they thought, I'm righteous. Why, why, do, I need, why do I need forgiveness? See, but heaven only accepts forgiven sinners. Heaven only accepts forgiven sinners. Now, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So only those who recognize their sinful state and how much they need God, and they turn to Jesus, only these people will be saved. Now, isn't it scary? You know, heaven is going to be full of people who are the rejects of society, the losers and the failures and the outcasts. But many decent and respectable and law-abiding and church-going people are not going to end up in heaven. You see, why? Because they don't believe that there's anything wrong with them. See, they think they're perfectly happy with themselves as they are. They don't see themselves as bad people. They trust that their own decency, their own religiosity and church-going is going to save them. They don't think that they need God in their lives. And so they say, well, life is what you make of it. You know, I'm, I'm okay. I don't need any help from anyone. I've done very well on my own. Thanks very much, Jesus, but no thanks. But what kind of person are you? You know, do you realize that you are actually a rebellious sinner? And do you, are you willing to admit to God that you really need Him to save you from your sin? You really need His forgiveness. And do you believe that Jesus has come to save you from that? Because if you don't, then you cannot enter God's kingdom no matter how religious, no matter how respectable or successful you are. But if you have already believed in Jesus, well, praise God for that. But then let me ask you, do you accept the people that Jesus accepts? I mean, look at the kind of people that Jesus welcomes, the outcasts, the people that society looks down upon. Well, let me tell you something. There are people in this church People in our midst who, are, who have a tainted background. People that the world wants nothing to do with. People who have made huge mistakes in life. But we are not people of this world. We are followers of Jesus. And we recognize that we are all also tainted, forgiven sinners. So do we have the love and compassion of Jesus for sinners? And do we welcome them that's one of us. See, I'm not asking you to uh, you know, say other people's sins are okay, to condone things that they've done. I'm not asking you to throw away your discernment. But I'm saying that we must not shun those people that our Lord Jesus welcomed. Now let's look at the next episode in chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. And again, this has to do with the Pharisees uh, and some of their man-made rules. And this time, uh, the issue is about fasting. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, the Jews 
had a compulsory fast once a year, which is on the Day of Atonement. Okay, that's the day when the whole nation uh, prayed to God and offered sacrifices for their forgiveness. And fasting was a sign of being sad over their sin. It was a sign of disciplining their body and being really seriously committed to God. I mean, later on in their history, they added more and more fasts. They had about four more public fasts. But the Pharisees had a lot more than that. You see, the Pharisees had much stricter rules. I mean, of course, these were considered as voluntary fasts, but still, they expected all Pharisees, all people who were strict Jews, to keep these fasts. And they fasted twice a week. And imagine that's like 100 days a year of fasting. You know, I don't think, I don't think they'll be very, I think they'll be all very slim people. Now, you see, they took pride in their fasting. See, for them, fasting was a badge of devotion to God. It was a sign of, you know, how, imp- I mean, it was, the, the more you fasted, the more impressive you were in terms of your sincerity towards God. And so you can imagine, you can understand now why these people saw Jesus and his disciples not fasting and they were so confused. Say, hey, hang on a minute, aren't you guys, uh, you know, a religious group? Aren't you guys supposed to be strictly devoted to God? How come you have it so easy. How come you don't have to fast? And Jesus could have had a debate with them about how, you know, it was not, it was all just not an Old Testament requirement. It was a man-made rule. You know, he could have criticized them that they were fasting, but their hearts were not right with God. They were hypocrites. But he didn't do that. See, what Jesus said was, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. Now, in March, I'm going to get married in Melbourne, okay? And I don't expect that I will turn up to my wedding and see a lot of long faces and sorrowful looks. Well, I hope not. I hope that will be a happy occasion. You see, and it's the same for Jesus, you see. He's like a bridegroom on his wedding day. It's just not appropriate for anyone to be fasting and sorrowing when he's around. See, Jesus is saying that fasting is an expression of our repentance and our dependence. Repentance from sin and dependence on God. And fasting is saying to God, Lord, I'm really serious about turning away from my sin. I'm really serious about turning to you and I wait for you to show mercy and to save me. But when the mercy and salvation has arrived, then it's a time for celebration and joy. You see, the sorrow must turn into joy because the bridegroom has come and because what we have longed for, for such a long time, has finally arrived. So there is something that is very fundamentally different about Jesus' ministry and all the religious movements that came before him. You know, whether they were the Pharisees, whether they were John the Baptist's disciples. See, all of those were in the old era. All of those were looking forward in expectation to Jesus' coming. But Jesus' ministry is now the new era of God's grace and salvation. And therefore, it is a time to rejoice. But then Jesus also qualifies this by saying in verse 20 that the disciples will fast when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Now he's talking about the fact that he's going to die on the cross and be taken away from them. So this is the first time in Mark's Gospel that Jesus hints at his coming death. He is aware that he's going to die. And when Jesus dies, then the disciples will fast. They they will be sorrowful because he's away but their sorrow will be short-lived because he will not be away from them for long. Now actually this section, of, uh, this, this section 
it's not just about the issue of fasting, because it's actually illustrating a broader principle. See, Jesus uses the issue of fasting to talk about how the new era of God's grace relates to the old era. So Jesus says this in verses 21 to 22. He says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now, nowadays we live in an age of consumerism, right? So if we go out and uh, buy a piece of clothing and has a small hole in it, we just ah, just throw away and buy a new one, right? But last time people used to patch it up, so they would look for a piece of cloth and cover the hole. But then you had to buy a piece of, you had to use a piece of cloth that was already shrunk. You see, so you know if you use a new piece of cloth that hadn't been shrunk yet, you put it in the wash with the sold on to the old one, it would shrink the new patch and tear off, tear off which would make the hole much bigger. And also last time people used to uh, pour wine into animal skins. And the wine would slowly ferment and expand. So if you use a, a fresh animal skin, it's okay, it was still sort of elastic and it would expand together with the wine. But if you use one that was already used, already expanded, and you pour new wine into it, the new one would expand, but the old wine skin would not be able to expand and so it would burst. You see, and you lose both the new wine and the old wine skin. Now with Jesus, what he's saying is that the new age has come. See, Jesus brings in this new era of God's salvation. He brings in God's kingdom on earth. The old practices, you know, like fasting or any other Old Testament practice, they don't apply anymore. The old ways don't work anymore. See, the old wine skins cannot contain this new thing that God is bringing in in Jesus. The old standards, the old expectations, they all have passed their expiry date. See, one time I, I bought some chicken to cook and I, I didn't put it in the freezer, I put it in the, in the fridge okay, because I thought I'm going to use it the next day. Now I'm going to defrost it again. Then the next day when I was cooking it, okay, it had a funny stale taste. It was slightly off. And then I tried adding all the you know, stuff to cover the taste, uh, strong spice, strong seasoning, strong salt. But it didn't, didn't work, okay? It tasted worse and worse. So in the end, I had to throw it all away and get a new lot of chicken. You see, Jesus has not come just to add a few new features to the old religion. Now, he, Jesus is not an appendix to the old religion. He's not like an amendment, you know, a renovating or an updating of the old religion. See, being a Christian is not just accepting Judaism and tacking on belief in Jesus the Messiah. But Christianity is fundamentally something new, a new work of God. The old no longer applies. So Jesus' teaching is a new teaching. We read that about two weeks ago. And Jesus came in to bring in a new order, a new age, a new way of relating to God. And so the Old Testament laws no longer apply directly to us. Things like sacrifices or circumcision or for forbidden foods, fasting. These are all part of the old ways. And Jesus has fulfilled all of these things. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with fasting as a spiritual discipline. Jesus never commands that we fast, but he doesn't forbid us from fasting. And we see in the early church, the disciples did fast as well. So, we don't have to fast, although if we choose to, there is nothing wrong with that. 
But all these old practices essentially pointed forward to Jesus' coming. But now that Jesus has come, they serve their purpose and therefore they're no longer necessary. But we now approach God in a new way that is through Christ. Now new wine must be put in new wine skins and the new changes our perspective on the old. And this principle does not just apply in the case of fasting, it also applies in the case of observing the Sabbath. And that's what we are going to look at next. Uh, firstly in chapter 2 verse 23 to 28 and then also chapter 3 verse 1 to 6. So in this first episode, part 1, Jesus is walking through the grain fields you know, on the Sabbath, probably having a leisurely stroll with his disciples after the synagogue. And uh, his disciples started to pick some of the grain to eat. But and actually the Old Testament law allows this, allows for people to do this, not stealing. But the problem is it's the Sabbath and the Pharisees saw this and they considered it as work. You see, and they asked Jesus, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And you might ask, well, what actually were they doing wrong? But, you see, the Pharisees, the, the Jews took observing the Sabbath very, very seriously. And they still do today. It's a very serious business. God commanded in the Old Testament that the Sabbath should be a holy day and it should be a day of rest from work. But the problem is, what is work? How do you define work? And the Old Testament did not uh, give a full exhaustive definition of work. And so, of course, the Pharisees tried to be very helpful and they drew up all these long lists of things that you should consider as work. Okay, And so, if you pick a bit of grain, it's considered as reaping or harvesting. Therefore, that's work. Okay, And other things that they say was work was like, if you tie a knot, that's work. If you write anything more than one letter of the alphabet, that's work. Uh, if you sew more than one stitch, that's work. Or if you give uh, medical attention to somebody on a Sabbath, except in the case of a life-threatening emergency, that's also work. It's forbidden. Now, apparently, I've never been to Israel, but apparently, uh, in Israel on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to, if you're, if you're a Jew, you're not supposed to actually press the leaf button because that would be considered as work. So, you, the leaf actually stops at every single level. That's what I'm told. Okay, I don't know, maybe we should ask some of those people who went to Israel to find out if that's true. Now, you can see how strict the Jewish interpretation is of the Sabbath. Okay, even though that Old Testament did not expressly forbid some of these things. So the disciples had definitely broken a man-made rule about the Sabbath, but it's not that clear that they broke the Old Testament law about the Sabbath. And Jesus' reply is very interesting. Again, Jesus could have debated with them about you know, whether picking the grain is considered work or not. You know, uh, but in fact, he doesn't even debate that. He assumes for the sake of argument, he assumes that the disciples have committed a, a, a breach of the Sabbath law. Okay, But his argument is that even though they have technically broken the Sabbath, they did not do anything wrong. That's very interesting. Let's have a look at his argument. Okay, So Jesus quotes this case from the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 21. Now I won't read to you the whole thing today, but basically if you know your Old Testament, you might remember that uh, David was the like an anointed king, uh, the one who was anointed to be king. But the, the the king at that time was Saul, and he was very jealous of David. He was trying to kill David. So David was basically a fugitive. He was running away from Saul with all his followers, and uh, David had no no food to eat for I don't know for how long. But they were obviously very hungry. They went to uh, the priest and asked the priest for bread. And the priest said, "I don't have any bread except the the holy consecrated bread." Uh, that only the priests are allowed to eat. But the priest gave this bread to David and he ate it and he gave it to his uh, followers. And the point is that 
Actually, David technically did break a law. That is, this bread was not supposed to be eaten by anyone except a priest. But David was not a priest. But even though he broke it, the scripture does not criticize David or fault David at all for breaking it. You see, it was only because of his great need that he had to break that command. David did not break the underlying spirit or essence of that law. You see. And the same principle applies to the Sabbath law. So Jesus says in verse 27 that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So God gave the Sabbath for man to rest. God gave the Sabbath for well-being. And therefore, um, if you look at the law in a way that stops people from rest, uh, stops people from enjoying that rest and well-being, then that's not the point of the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath was not given so that man could be a slave of the law. And the whole focus of the Pharisees was basically wrong. See, Jesus is saying that they made the Sabbath into this whole list of restrictive rules so that it ended up going against the actual purpose of the law. See, they, the Pharisees were so preoccupied with all their do's and don'ts, all their little rules, that they actually neglected the real underlying reason for why the law was there in the first place. See, they made this, the Sabbath is meant to be what? About rest. But they made it into this huge burden for people. People were so stressed out trying to obey the Sabbath properly. And so Jesus is saying that obeying the original purpose of the law is more important than obeying all these man-made regulations about how to keep the Sabbath. See, otherwise, it would defeat the purpose of the law. And so in verse 28, the fact, uh, verse 28 goes on to say that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. See, Jesus has made uh, an authoritative pronouncement about how to interpret the Sabbath. And this shows that he has the authority to interpret the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now just think for a minute, this is actually a very huge claim. Because who's the one who put the Sabbath in place? It's actually God. So if you say, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, what you're really claiming is you're claiming the same authority as God. You're claiming to be God. And so last week we saw that Jesus claimed the authority to forgive sins, which is an authority that only God had. And this week Jesus claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath, which is again only an authority that belongs to God. Now let's look at chapter 3, verse six, 1 to 6. Again, this episode is the same. It shows that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath and that he has the authority to correctly interpret the Sabbath. Okay, what happens here is Jesus went to the synagogue on a, on a Sabbath and there there was a man with a shriveled hand. Okay, by the way, I think Jesus was a neurologist because he healed a paralytic. Now he healed a man with a shriveled hand and healed people with epilepsy. You know, so. Anyway, the Pharisees were there. Okay, They were all watching Jesus, hoping that Jesus would heal on the Sabbath and then they would have a reason to accuse him of breaking the law. See, Jesus obviously knew what they were thinking. But Jesus did not shy away from conflict. In fact, Jesus initiated this showdown with them. And he called this man with a shriveled hand to stand up in front of everyone. Okay, then he asked the people, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And they couldn't answer his question. See, Jesus is saying that it, to heal on the Sabbath is not just permitted, it's actually demanded. You see, if we have to do good on every day of the week, 
all the more we should do good on the Sabbath, the holy day to God. See, the Sabbath is precisely a time for doing good and a time for relieving suffering. If someone's in need and you refuse to do him good, then you, it's just as good as doing him evil. And if you could save somebody's life but you choose not to, then that's just as good as taking their life. See how wrong it is for the Pharisees to stop people from doing good on the Sabbath. So, for example, in this building, right, there is a rule uh, that we should not bring food and drinks into the building, okay, into this hall, okay. Now, imagine if somebody uh, collapsed while they were listening to me, my preaching, okay, for whatever reason, okay, and uh, we wanted to give him some medicine, okay, but then someone said, hey, hang on a minute, uh, cannot give them any water to swallow the pill because we are not allowed to eat, bring food and drink into this hall, okay. How is he going to follow the medicine? You see, the point, the problem is that this would be too strict an interpretation of this rule, right? I mean, the rule was here originally to just to stop the carpet from getting dirty. But now you are so hung up over the rule, you are endangering somebody's life because of that. And it's the same problem with the Pharisees. See, the problem is they didn't understand how God intended the law to work. See, they took the law as an end in itself. And when the law was not clear, what they did was they made up all these supplementary rules to try to clarify the law. And then they got so hung up with enforcing their rules that they forgot about why the law was there in the first place. And, and then when their restrictive rules worked against the original intention of God's law, instead of going back to God's law, they insisted on their own rules. See, they ignore the fact that the law is not there for its own sake. The law is there for the sake of people. See, the Sabbath was the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath law was put there in, for people's good. It was to enable people to rest. And therefore, to ban people from doing good on the Sabbath is against the original intention. Now, you know, Sometimes we look at we, we talk about the Pharisees and we always criticize the Pharisees, right? But you know, actually, right, we also often find it much easier to live by rules. You see, we don't want to have to think so hard all the time. We want just people just tell me what to do, okay? Just give me a set of do's and don'ts, tell me what to do and I'll do it. Okay. But you see the problem with just focusing on a set of rules is that we are missing the point. See, we should be more interested in people than in rules. And Jesus himself, when he was asked to summarize what the law is about, Jesus says, the law is about loving God and loving your neighbor. So if we just keep rules without the principle of love for people, then it ends up being legalistic, judgmental, negative, and hypocritical. See, true devotion to God is not keeping rules while we are ignoring other people's needs. And true devotion to God is, in fact, loving our neighbor as ourselves. And only by loving people in this way can we fulfill the true intent of God's law. Now, church people are very well known uh, for having lots of rules. Okay, Some of the rules might be uh, spoken rules and some might be unspoken rules. Okay, So we have rules about hairstyles and body piercings and tattoos and styles of clothing that we should wear to church and types of shoes that we should wear and so on. And I once heard of a church uh, that where the consistory debated this question. Is it right for Christians to color their hair? 
and after I don't know how long, uh, they decided that it was right for women, but it's not right for men. Okay? Now, see, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that rules are bad. Okay? I'm not saying that we should not have any rules. Okay? We all need rules and guidelines. Okay? But when we apply rules in a judgmental way, without any sensitivity and without love, then the rule becomes more important to us than the person. Then we become like the Pharisees. So I think a good rule of thumb is when you are about to uh, lay down the law, when you're about to criticize, just think to yourself, am I doing this because I love this brother or sister? Or am I doing this because a rule that I hold very dear has been broken? Now Jesus didn't allow man-made rules about the Sabbath to stop him from doing good on the Sabbath. He healed the man with a shriveled hand and that got the Pharisees so mad that they wanted to kill him. You see, isn't it ironic that Jesus, who has a bad reputation with them, they think he's a lawbreaker. In fact, he's the only one who's obeying the law because he's actually doing good and saving life on the Sabbath. But these Pharisees who thought that they were keeping the law, they were so fired up about it, in fact, they were ending up breaking the law because they were plotting evil and they were plotting to kill Jesus on the Sabbath. So what is your reaction to Jesus? And don't, don't fall into the trap of reacting like the Pharisees. See, they saw Jesus' mighty words and his mighty deeds, but they just refused to follow the evidence where it led. They refused to consider it at all because of their stubborn and hard hearts, it says in the passage, because of their pride and their self-righteousness. They refused to accept Jesus' authority over the Sabbath. So let's not be like that, but let us believe in Jesus and accept his authority. Now by this stage in Mark's Gospel, we've seen there's been opposition to building, building up, uh, opposition to Jesus, building up, building up, until it gets to this climax in chapter 3, verse 6, where they're plotting to kill him. Now, Jesus is really a controversial figure. You see, he provokes very strong reactions in people. And if you take his words and his deeds seriously, then you will either end up loving him or hating him. So we see... In chapter 3, the crowds being drawn to Jesus. And these crowds come from a very, very vast area, all the way from the north to the south, in Gentile territory, in Jewish territory. And then Jesus also has disciples. And from the large group of disciples, he also calls out 12 to be in a special, uh, for a special role to be his apostles. So we can see that Jesus has his supporters and his followers. But on the other hand, Jesus also has many, many detractors and critics. And even his own family. Uh, criticized him and thought he was mad. But the worst rejection of Jesus here is the religious authorities, the response of the teachers of the law. And we see this in chapter 3, verse 22 to 30. <coughs> okay, this was an official delegation from HQ, okay, from Jerusalem itself. And they came and saw all these great and wonderful things that Jesus was doing. Jesus was healing the sick, casting out demons. And they came to this conclusion that Jesus is doing all this because he has a great demon inside him and is able to cast out all the, all the smaller demons. <coughs> and what does Jesus say to this? Well, Jesus basically says this is a ridiculous statement, right? I mean, people, I mean, a lot of you would be working in big organizations and you know that, you know, organizations don't work in this way, governments don't work in this way. If a kingdom is divided against itself, how can it stand? And so, imagine if, uh, you know, the Prime Minister said, Okay, we're going to have a bilingual policy in this country, in all the schools. 
And then the same day, the education minister came out and said, oh, we are not going to teach Chinese anymore in school, just English. Okay. Now, if the government was contradicting itself like that, of course there would be chaos and confusion. So in the same way, oh, thanks. In the same way, if one demon decides to go and possess somebody and another demon decides to cast out that demon, what kind of kingdom would Satan be running? I mean, Satan would need a management consultant to sort out his kingdom, right? So, but Satan is not that dumb. So Jesus is saying that the fact that he can cast out the demons shows that he has power over Satan. You see, it does not mean that Satan is working against himself to trick people, but Jesus has broken Satan's power and releasing people from bondage under Satan. And those people who say that Jesus' power comes from an evil spirit are actually blaspheming God. Uh, blaspheme means to speak against God. So if you see very clear evidence about Jesus, who Jesus is, but you say that it comes from Satan, then you are actually blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus' power is from the Holy Spirit. You are saying that God's work is Satan's work. He's saying that good is evil. And what does Jesus say? He says, All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, sometimes Christians are, are scared that they might commit this unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Okay, but a true Christian cannot commit this sin. Because what is blasphemy against is the Spirit? So it means rejecting the truth about Jesus. Not because you are ignorant, not because you don't know enough about who Jesus is, but even though you know all about Jesus, you still refuse to acknowledge Him. That is blasphemy against the Spirit. So it is a deliberate and a thoughtful and a willful rejection of Jesus' claims, despite knowing that there is no other explanation for it. And so if you are truly a Christian, then you cannot commit this sin because you have already believed in and accepted Jesus. And the fact that somebody worries about this shows that they are not committing this sin because those people who do commit this sin would not worry about it. Now why is it that this sin cannot be forgiven? It's because of the very nature of this sin. The blasphemy against the Spirit is not just a once-off rejection of Jesus, it's a persistent and a stubborn refusal and a stubborn rejection of Jesus. So if you keep refusing this message about Jesus, then you'll never be forgiven. Why? Because Jesus is the only way for you to be forgiven. Believing in Him is the only way to forgiveness. Now if you don't believe in Jesus, well then, let me ask you, are you in danger of committing this very serious sin? Now if you've been told the good news again and again, and you know deep down that it must be true, and you can't think of a good uh, reason to reject it, but you still refuse to commit yourself because it means that you have to change your life. But then you are in danger. You are in danger. See, you are in danger because every time you reject Jesus, you are hardening your heart more and you are making yourself more stubborn until you reject forever the only person who can save you. So don't let it get to that stage. Don't be like the Pharisees, but admit to Jesus today that you are wrong and you need him and he will save you. So to sum up, what have we learned from today's passage? Well, in this passage we learn four great truths about Jesus and four corresponding truths about ourselves. 
Firstly, Jesus is a friend of sinners. That means he came to save sinners. And the corresponding truth about us is that we are sinners, sick with sin. Do you acknowledge that truth about yourself? Because if you do and you turn to Jesus in repenting and in believing in him, then God will forgive your sins. The second truth is that Jesus is the bringer of the new. He has brought in God's new age of salvation. And the truth about us is that we cannot reach God by our own religious performance. So do you want to be part of God's new order? And if you do, the only way to God is to go through Jesus and to accept His authority. And thirdly, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has the authority to interpret God's law and the authority uh, to explain God's purpose to us. Okay, And the truth about ourselves is that on our own, we cannot fulfill God's demands. We can't even, we can't, we tend to pervert God's laws and turn it into a legalism and we can't even understand the true meaning and purpose of God's law. So will you trust in Jesus' words and his teachings and will you follow him and, and obey what he has to say about God? And finally, Jesus is the defeater of Satan. He's a strong man who binds Satan and releases people from that bondage. The truth about us is that unless Jesus saves us, we are all helplessly under the power of Satan. And do you acknowledge that you need Jesus to rescue you from this? Do you feel that you know you can overpower Satan by your own strength? Now I'm sure that all of you uh, have been to the doctors, right? And you've had unpleasant uh, things done to you. So when a doctor gives you an injection, right, you don't stand up and punch him, right? Because you, you just meekly submit to it because you know that although it hurts, it's good for you. Now the truth may hurt, but it's always better to accept the truth than to believe in a lie. It's better for us to accept the truth about our sinfulness and our need for Jesus so that we can be saved. See, so let's not, accept, uh, let's not reject God's truth because of our pride. Uh, C.S. Lewis Uh, wrote this book called Mere Christianity, right? And uh, he had this to say. He said this, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. You see, in other words, as long as you are proud and you don't think that you need God, you cannot know God. See, the good news of Jesus offends the proud people. But the good news of Jesus saves those who are humble. And therefore, let us Humble ourselves before God. Let's confess our sinfulness and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior and submit ourselves to His authority. Let's all pray. Heavenly Father, indeed we thank You for showing Your grace and Your mercy towards undeserving sinners like us by sending Your Son, our Lord Jesus. We thank You that He came to call us to repentance and faith so that we could be saved from sin and eternal punishment. Thank you that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament and he ushered in a new order of joy and freedom. Thank you for his authority, including his authority over the Old Testament law. And thank you that he frees us from the power of the devil. Please work in our hearts by your Spirit and please work especially in the hearts of those people here who do not yet know you that they will humble themselves before you 
and acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Saviour. May they not harden their hearts against you or blaspheme your spirit. And please help those of us who belong to you to have the same compassion on sinners that Jesus had, knowing that we too have been shown compassion. And help us not to simply focus on rigidly keeping rules at the expense of loving people and doing good. But instead help us to love you with all that we are and to love our neighbour as ourselves so that our lives may bring you glory now and forevermore. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Saviour and King. Amen.